Welcome to another groundbreaking episode of Unlearn Everything. And in today's episode, which I shouldn't really admit, but I'm really excited to kind of have this discussion because it's stuff that I have been personally exploring for a while. We're going to venture beyond the accepted history books and, and really question the very pillars that have shaped our understanding of who we are as a human species. And again, I'm Devo, your guide on this journey of self-discovery, if you will. And I'm thrilled to be joined for a second time by a trailblazer in the realm of ancient history and lost civilizations. His name is Matt LaCroix. And roughly about five years ago, I sort of embarked on my own journey to just basically to unlearn everything and to to strip away the layers of information or misinformation rather and the dogma that has been presented to me and really all of us for for our entire lives. It's crazy to me how much in the last few years, I have realized that everything I have been told from history to philosophy to economics to how the finances work, it was all a misrepresentation in order to design to, to control us. And so this path led me to Matt, ultimately, and what an eye-opening journey we had. It's been one of our, our larger podcasts that we've posted, and with his scholarly insights and his, really, it's kind of interesting, his fearless exploration into the unknown, he has... He has challenged and he has expanded our very understanding of history itself. And so just a bit about Matt, so you understand who we're talking to today and why you should sort of pay attention. He's not just an author, uh, which he is an author. He's got several books. I have them right here in my bookshelf. I've read them both. But he's a researcher. He's an explorer. And he's very pragmatic about it. And he's really a revolutionary thinker. And if you listen to any of his content, you sort of see he's right always on the fringe of, of exploring things that, that are rarely talked about. He pushes the bubble. He published a really good book. I think it was his first one called The Illusion of Us. And if you haven't read it, pick it up. It's on Amazon. You can find it at any bookstore. And he did this really deep dive into the forgotten truths of, of our past that have been purposely buried and then he followed up with the second book, The Stage of Time, which is equally as enlightening. And in this book, he tackled the mysteries of lost civilizations and ancient catastrophes. And then just recently, just I believe at the end of 2023, last year, he co-authored a net, I think it's his third book now, uh, called The Epic of Humanity. And he did it with one of my favorite unlearning disciples, Billy Carson, which if you have never found or discovered Billy Carson, please look him up. Anyway, he, based upon what he's done since I last spoke to him and what he's been doing for the for for the for the latter half of his life right now he's really cementing his role as a pivotal voice in this historical discourse of unlearning everything we've been taught so today's episode on unlearn everything is really more than an intellectual discussion it's an exploration into the origins of religion I I really want to uncover sort of how religion has shaped humanity today but religion was shaped Prior, before, prior to religion even coming about, it was shaped by some of the truths that he's uncovering in sort of the history of man. So on that last episode, he brought forth some revolutionary ideas that really resonated deeply with our, with our audience, and it sparked a, a desire for me to really kind of go down this rabbit hole and just really uncover what has actually gone on and the amount of knowledge that I have uncovered with guests like Matt and, and people of his of his ilk. It's just really crazy to me. So one thing, and, I, and I'll, I'll bring him here in a second. I'll stop rambling. I know he's he's waiting to jump on. Um, I had this conversation with someone the other day, and, and they asked me, they said, look, why should we care about this information? What what difference does it make? Like, history is history. It's done and over. It's in the past. And And the only thing I can think of is, as a species, our history has been marked by conquest and control, where the victor's narrative often 
drowns out the voices of the people that they conquered, the vanquished. And we've seen entire civilizations' histories rewritten in, in a literally a single generation. And so today on this show and, and just in general, it's important for us to understand and challenge these orthodox narratives that have that have shaped who we are and how we think and how we view other people and really unravel it so that we can understand that it was it was a history wrought with control and manipulation that has hidden the truth from us. And to understand the past is to understand our future and, and really understand the power that we as a, as a species really possess. And that knowledge has been hidden from us. So Matt's here to help guide us through this labyrinth of historical and religious paradigms and to shed some light on the origins of humanity and how it's impacted who we are today. So welcome to A Little Impolite the podcast that's unafraid to dive into unconventional thoughts and ideas. I'm your host, Devo, inviting you to embark on a journey into thought-provoking discussions, expansive revelations, and the stories of inspiring individuals. We're here to challenge norms, provoke intellectual curiosity, and engage in candid conversations about society, culture, and the human condition, all with a slight touch of polite impropriety. From experts questioning the status quo to creatives daring to think differently, you'll hear a spectrum of voices that aim to shake us out of our comfort zones. So are you ready for this enlightening journey where the expected meets the unexpected and polite society meets a dash of rebellion? Buckle up, stay curious, and let's get a little impolite. I'm really excited, Matt. Thank you. Sorry for that long-winded introduction, but I'm really sort of tickled to have you and, and welcome back to the show. Thank you, Devo. It's good to be back with you, my friend. That was a really nice introduction. I appreciate that. And I just want to add one thing that, you know, to that person's question of like, what should you care about with history and what does it matter? It's really not just about rewriting history so we understand necessarily just where we've been. But in order for us to understand where we're going, it's essential that we understand where we've been because where we've been contains most of the answers that we've been seeking to understand where we're going. Instead of thinking of it as a primitive past with people that were primitive-minded, we should think of it as an entire time period of history that was lost with thinkers that were far more superior than we truly are now, in my opinion. Scholars on a level that we can't even comprehend. The texts they left behind, they were brilliant beyond comprehension. And so we must go back in order to understand who we truly are and the fundamental role that consciousness and our energy and our souls play in the entire role of this vast universe, multiverse that exists all around us, we have to realize what role we play. And in order to do that and understand that, we have to go back and understand what the ascended masters mm -hmm. of our lost history were trying to teach us all along. Yeah, I love what you just said. And and this gentleman who I was having this conversation with, he's an ex-athlete. He actually played some professional football and was a pretty high-level college football player. And so the analogy I used to him is, and I was an athlete in college, so I remember the days, we would watch past films so that we could understand how we had done in a prior event or a prior game. Uh, yeah. And we would study sort of like the chronology of games and really pick up on habits. And I was like, just like in the most banal example, we watched film of ourselves of so how we could improve upon ourselves, understanding our past. It's like, let's watch films from the past from these people like yourself that are uncovering all of these things that have been hidden from us. And it really helps shape the narrative of who we can become and really stepping into our power. Yeah. But essentially, in, I mean, we go back to starting, you know, where we were, but not to get off on this, but just to add that though, 
it's very critical we understand that we must not think of the ancient people as being more primitive in mm. their their thinking than us in order for us to not think we can learn something from them that is completely backwards yeah. if anything it really is the opposite so it's great to be here devo a lot's changed since you and i talked let's catch up on everything and go down this rabbit hole before you do that, it's interesting. I was listening to you and Paul Wallace in a conversation and you were talking about, and I believe this was you who said this, forgive me if not, but based upon some of the things you've uncovered, it's a very real possibility that there have been at least five or six known civilizations that reached a peak of something greater than what we've accomplished right now, because we think we're the epicenter of, of, all of all of the knowledge, but at least five or six different civilizations that we actually now have some historical evidence that could have possibly existed prior to us. It just depends on what your your definition of more sophisticated and more advanced is. I definitely not technologically, I would say, or at least I don't think um, it's possible. Let's not close the door on that completely. There has been some unusual things that point to some technological things that were achieved in ancient, ancient times like Atlantis and Egypt, but in Greece also. But for a moment, like that's we can move past that. And we have to go back into this avenue of thinking. How about their mindsets? How about their understanding of the universe, their understanding of energy, the earth, ley lines, the understanding of sacred geometry, their understanding of mathematics? All of those things played into what I consider a great superiority over that time period in their thinking. And if you want to label that, if, if you want to label society that has the arts and our philosophers and our mathematicians and astronomers, and are the great thinkers, then yes, they were more superior than we are in that way. And I would completely say, and you can probably add engineering, because their engineering ability to create giant megalithic walls that are tuned in specifically to a harmonic ratio of a specific stone they used, which in many cases is a stone that is so hard that we have no comprehension of how they even cut it or moved it, which is like a whole part of what we talked about on part one about two years ago on that last show. But since then, a lot of revelations and a lot of things have happened that have connected this narrative that truly I, this is the encapsulation of this entire discussion based on what we just said and then adding to where we're gonna go is that these discoveries we're about to talk about and the implications they have truly connect to something that I think will fundamentally change our understanding of consciousness, religion, spirituality, and lost civilizations forever. I really believe that we're about to talk about and this huge thing that's going on right now that's got a lot of very powerful people around the world interested. And you can read between the lines on that. In these discoveries as being like this origin point missing link between religion and spirituality and the ancient ascended masters of, of the past. And that's what we can talk about today. Yeah, these people you referenced, fact check me after one of your episodes, I posted on Instagram some of the stuff that you had talked about. So it is interesting how people are listening, even though they're trying to suppress the information. And and one small note before you jump into this, um, at your behest, because you referenced in, in a show prior, I flew to Peru this past year. And I spent uh, almost two weeks there in one of the one of the more monumental, well, there was every every part of it was pretty epic, but I hiked to the top of, of Machu Picchu, Montuana. 11,000 feet above and being able to look down and sort of see these yeah. monolithic carvings that they had done. But in just outside of Cusco, I, did, I went and saw the Nazca Lions and I uh, flew in a small private charter plane over them. And just the intricacies and the level of detail that was dug into this 
the sand bed or limestone, whatever it was, and the, the shapes and the animals. And there's like whales that didn't even exist in the middle of a desert somewhere. So how could these people have known about this stuff? So anyway, just a sidebar. Just so thank you for turning me on to that. It was a fantastic trip. So. Sounds like a great, a great little adventure you had. Oh, man, it was the coolest. I was there for almost two weeks, got to see most of Peru, at least the stuff that matters. But the Nazca lines were just something, I don't know why, just something about the space of that time and space just blew me away. But well, anyway, we'll be, on to you. We're going to be including Peru and Bolivia as part of the film and these discoveries to link. So it's directly connected. And we can talk about that as we go along. All right. So I want to jump into one of the things that really has blown me away, this discovery of, of a key to civilizations that existed prior to us. And and uh, you did a show, uh, I'm not sure how, how long ago, but it was with Billy Carson and Paul Wallace. And you talked about this, this ancient site that you had un uncovered, which was potentially being the key to understanding all of civilization. So I just like to jump into it there, if that's okay with you. And just sure. we're just going to hit it with the home run right off the bat. My life has been a complete whirlwind over the last, say, year, but especially over the last three, four months. Really is quite, quite surreal, and I truly appreciate being given the opportunity to tell such an incredible and important story for mankind. And I think that that story, I'm not at all going to say I'm the first person to discover this. I think that what was be is being discovered has been discovered and has been recently discovered. That's the thing is some of these sites in eastern Turkey around Lake Vaughan are very new. They're less than 20 years old. I think, even having said that, that those connections are likely known. I'm not the first person. I think they're known, but perhaps I'm the first person that was able to put this together in a way where the common person can be connected. And this can really come out to, to the world in a way where I think we truly can finally have a better understanding of answering some of the most difficult questions we've been asking for asking for thousands of years. Mm. Um, and that started literally almost exactly a year ago from now that this whole thing started with, you know, if you remember the past show and you know me, I'm basically obsessed with the Sumerians and studying cuneiform tablets and trying to understand this truly ancient story and mysterious origins of who we are and where we come from. But in particular, how the Sumerians of Mesopotamia modern-day Iraq, could have, and, and this is just traditional known information, this is what you learn in school, but even in school, they'll teach you, and they're, and they're right about that, I just, I don't agree with the time frame. They'll teach you that civilization emerged in terms of agriculture and building and laws and rules in one place on the earth, and they agree with this. It, it, it emerged in Sumer, out of Iraq, in places like Eridu and Shurupak and Uruk, and those kinds of locations, but it came out of nowhere. And I mean, what's so odd about it is that they literally invented everything. Mm -hmm. And it's as my archaeologist friend, uh, Jennifer Deo, that we'll get into talking about in a minute, her famous, her line that she said on a, a great video I'm just about to release is, and this is from an archaeologist, and we'll, we'll get into that exciting information how she's involved in this. But she said, you don't have something like the Sumerians as a fully cooked culture, those are her words, come out of nowhere. Fully cooked culture, what does that mean? Sumerians invented agriculture, which is the building block of a civilization, had to irrigate landscapes and had to grow large-scale crops, then creating the first currency based on wheat, based on their agriculture, then creating laws and rules and governing, creating streets, creating ancient temples, learning how to build, discovering basically the keys to astronomy, mathematics, metallurgy, 
uh, animal husbandry, raising animals, writing, the first writing ever in the world, which is still one of the most advanced writings that's ever existed and is a very mysterious writing. And I could go on and on and on. If we were to think about the foundations of our reality and how civilization could have taken off to where we are now, you, we owe everything, every single thing we have to the Sumerians because they were the ones who passed all of that information then around the world to the Greeks and the Egyptians, which then became this incredibly you know, mysterious aspect of us where we just sort of emerged. We emerged and all this story came forward, but we don't understand where it went, how far back it goes and where it started. And I agree it started in Sumer, but I believe that the original Sumerian timeline is far more ancient than we've been told. And I have direct evidence to link that and prove it. And I've been working with Jennifer Deo on specifically a site called Shirupak. And Shirupak is considered the last of the Sumerian cities. That's all that's mentioned in numerous tablets that have come out of like the Ashurbanipal Library and others in 1849 from Austin Henry Laird. But what they, what's amazing about Shirupak is that it proves that this ancient narrative history of our, of our past is true. And that it beyond legend and myth, there really was an epic event that occurred on the earth and many epic events. There actually has evidence now that there have been multitudes of these events, but we'll call it the original event. We'll call it the first widespread of event where humanity had emerged and then was then had to had to go through something like that kind of event where we almost were wiped out. Humanity almost disappeared and never existed again after that event. And that event. I believe is not even the younger Dryas, not even 12,000 years ago. This is what's going to blow people's mind that if we're trying to expand from a 6,000 year narrative that's taught in school of human history emerging, and, I'm, and, and then younger Dryas of disasters that people know about if they research this with all of these lost civilization stuff, and that's double that age, how, how difficult it is it then to say, well, no, I don't even think it was that event. I think it was another event wow. previous to that. So try to wrap your head around, I'm talking about 20,000 plus years ago, plus with a strong emphasis, emphasis on the plus. Wow. Okay. So, so real quickly, if I may interject. Yeah. So mainstream historians, mainstream scientists, some of them are actually starting to come around and agree to this narrative, yes. or is this still outlier? Well, that's what's so important is an announcement that I haven't even really had a chance to make that you're getting on here right now is that a full mainstream Mesopotamian archaeologist Jennifer Deo with a also an anthropologist human origins has basically come together to work with me on this oh, wow. because she and I'm not going to speak for Jennifer but that she doesn't feel that the mainstream narrative that's presented with these findings is correct hmm. and so we are going and jo she's joining the team of with Billy Carson you know ancient expert with me yeah. Brian Forrester megalithic expert Paul Wallace, biblical expert, and now her as the fifth member as an actual archaeologist, anthropologist, to come together and as a team, kind of like this dream team with people from all over the world and expertise, to come together to truly change history, to put all the evidence together from full surveys, full archaeological surveys and site analysis, okay, and having biblical experts and megalithic experts and going to each one of these locations and we truly are going to point out with an evidence-driven way to not only destroy our historical narrative, but rewrite history in a completely new way. And that's what part of this whole team is. And you, as you mentioned, 
No, not that I'm aware of as an archaeologist with a well-accredited archaeologist with experience ever come forward on mainstream ever in history to do what's about to happen. And so I commend Jennifer Deo for being a hero in this for what we're about to do because we now have the means to be able to actually change history. But not only that, who cares, right? Changing history. We're going to connect a lost narrative that ancient civilizations and ancient secret societies around the world have been trying to protect their legacy of, from the Knights Templar all the way secretly into the Vatican and the British royal family. This is a story that goes back far beyond what most could ever imagine. I don't want to make light of what you just said. I think that we should draw some attention to this because people who are listening who don't really have a lot of knowledge around what you just said should really be made aware that mainstream hasn't bought into what you're saying primarily. And in fact, they've actually been bullied into not sharing this type of information because of. So can you sort of explain that a little bit, how, you know, yeah. they can lose their professorships or sure. because they're funded, all these sorts of things. Like, Absolutely. Why has information been suppressed by people so predominantly in the mainstream historical world up until yeah. now, this young, this woman is now stepping out. So science is a very polarizing type of aspect of re looking at a reality because the problem is that science runs up against two huge challenges. The first challenge that science runs up against, and archaeology is just a science, is looking at what people had said before you, okay, and then where you're going to decide to go and what you say going forward. So if you have all of this history of famous archaeologists and famous scientists that have devoted their life to certain studies, Egypt and Turkey, um, and they have written all these accredited academic papers and books, and you then be, want to become an archaeologist. You're like, I love history. I want to uncover the past. You go to school, you spend all that money, you get, you get your archaeological degree, and you spend your entire time reading about the heroes of your past. Oh, they, they fundamentally changed their understanding of history. This, this name, this name, this name, right? They laid this framework and foundation down, and you become part of a very intricate club of scientists. And then you get there, and you all these other scientists around you, and they're all like, I'm doing my dissertation on ancient Mesopotamian history regarding the origin flood story and things. And they did that. They did that. And their findings and what we're going to talk about is very interesting what has come out of some academics even studying some of these things and trying to like then come up with conclusions to match a very specific doctrine of history that has been protected. Mm -hmm. This doctrine in school that we're taught, if you're in the United States and you're going to go learn about history, that doctrine of education from mathematics to astronomy, history, everything, is, it comes from World War II from the Rockefeller family when they established the educational doctrine. It has not changed since. In fact, you can't really teach anything else because you can basically lose your job as a teacher. So we'll try to imagine the facet of this goes into a lot of other areas than just scientists. You have professors and, and teachers that can't say anything different because they, they have an educational doctrine that must be followed. They teach, they all teach like, it's like almost identical and it's like sad. Imagine, you go into a, you could go into a classroom that it's like a, maybe like ninth grade or something on history, and then you like have the ability to close your eyes and snap your fingers and go into like another history class like a thousand miles away in another state, and they're both like on the news, they're both like saying the same thing, like rah, rah, you know, like on the, where they do those news comparisons, yeah. they're literally saying the same thing, 
And you're like, so everyone gets taught the same thing. Well, those people who go to school, they become archaeologists. So that's their basis to learn from. Then they go, they become archaeologists and they, they go in and they're excited to study. And they're, but what they want the most, and they should, is being taken, being credible, being someone who is respected, a respected archaeologist. And in order to do that, you can't push any lines. You can't change anything that anyone else said. You simply must regurgitate findings based on who came before you in order to be accepted by that academic world. Mm. Credible based upon the context of the delivery that they were taught and that people think is the standard, and therefore that's what they're going to learn from is that standard. It's very similar to the medical industry today. Well, but there's another huge piece of it I didn't add yet. The other piece, because I said there's two parts, right? That's part one. Part two is pretty serious, and it has to do with funding. If you're an archaeologist and you want to go work on a project, right? Oh, I want to go be part of this project. You're either going to be part of an existing project that's already being worked on, or you're going to be trying to get funding and grants to get to be able to go work on that project. I mean, unless you just happen to be born into a wealthy family, which most aren't, you have to then, number one, if you're part of an existing project, what are the scope, what is the scope of that project? What are you trying to prove? What are you, what do you, what is, what is the, what is the whole purpose of it, right? So if you have a bunch of archaeologists, they're all excavating something. You're not going to have one that's like, based on their funding of what they're getting for this, one that's like, um, I think you guys are wrong. I actually think the site is like 20,000 years older than what you're saying. And I think it's connected to lost civilizations around the world. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to tell everybody. I'm going to, I'm going to tell everyone. And then guess what? Their funding is gone. They get laughed at. They're kicked out. They become a nobody and no one hears from them ever again. That is exactly what has happened for a very long time. And I don't know how many archaeologists have actually tried to do that. I'd be curious to know um, how many. But I will tell you, that is changing. That paradigm is shifting dramatically. And those old times are not around anymore. And, and we're now at the point where even archaeologists and others are willing to stand, step forward. And that is what's happening right now. I always marvel at people like yourself, these revolutionary thinkers who have these ideas. They're outliers initially, but once you start really speaking up and you're able to back it up with support and evidence and, and documentation and data around it, it is interesting how other people slowly start to latch onto that and then they too get empowered to say it. So kudos to you and, and people of your of your like that are doing this. And um, it, it, one final point before you jump into that, your your dialogue. Another thing that I was thinking about prior to this conversation is that History itself, it, it's based upon someone's individual narrative, right? Yeah. And that narrative is, and I said it in the outset of the introduction, it's generally based upon the current conquered controller yes. of, that, of, of that narrative, right? Yeah. And it's crazy to me, like if you even look here in America, just if you need a frame of reference, entire indigenous cultures were wiped out and rewritten after they were conquered by the American empire. And so yeah. this whole new idea of what they wanted us to believe and the indoctrination of the younger kids in the generation is like one generation away and an entire culture gets wiped out. So it's just crazy to me. It is great to see what's happening with Columbus Day though. Because yeah. that really is what you're talking about, and specific in reference. I mean, horrible things happen with Cortez in Mexico, uh, Mexico and Pizarro in South America. But you know, we don't, we can't forget about the America, the United States, where we're talking to each other right now. What Columbus did, and what other subsequent conquerors that came after did, is they destroyed the entire legacy of this 
this beautiful memory. We're going to call it a memory. A beautiful memory of an ancient past of knowledge that had passed around the world with lost civilizations that had then been destroyed from catastrophes. And that knowledge had trickled down in to indigenous groups and Native American groups. And they then woven that into the very heart of their teaching and shamanic rituals of connecting heaven on earth, balance and harmony with all of nature and, and everything around you and harmony and balance within. And that is exactly the types of teachings that come from Lake Vaughn that we're going about to get into is the heart of all of that. But it's truly sad to me that we're finally, I mean, it's, it's sad and, and happy to me at the same time, but we're finally getting to that point where Columbus, being, is, instead of being this hero, is being seen as this, as this truly a monster who just took slaves and murdered and was really, really only came to the Caribbean and the, in America for, um, not for a, a Western spice trade route. He never, trade route. He never even found Mexico. He came to the Caribbean over subsequently three trips back and forth with gold and slaves because they ended up finding all kinds of gold from the Arawak people in the Bahamas, in the Caribbean, and then they basically mined Dominican Republic in the Cuba and Puerto Rico, which is a history that people don't even know about Columbus. But that's really the true story of a Columbus, is that they were taking slaver, slaves, mining for gold, and then they came and they were just conquering lands. And that legacy of those people, you know, that, that image of like a, a Native American shaman up on a mountaintop, you know, pounding a, a, a drum, and he's, you know, observing and watching the world around him collapse and be destroyed. And it's like everything is collapsing around him. And it's all that remains is like preserving that which means the most and matters the most to them. Wild. And that's what means so much about these places. It's wild. You, you talked about a memory of past civilizations and these megalithic sites. I don't think a lot of people are even aware that even within America itself, all over the country, there are massive pyramids and 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 things that have been buried, whether it's under mud or whether there was a catastrophe or intentionally buried. You know, I know that I there's the, like up in Montana, for example, there's all sorts of things. And even in I was watching that show by Graham Hancock on Net, Netflix where he discovered all those temples and those pyramids just in I think it was in Ohio or somewhere in the Midwest. So it's just it's crazy to me. All right. Well, let's jump into your show. So you can begin wherever you want. But for me, I guess we'll go back to Shrewpack. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take off there. All right. So you you've made some discoveries. I'm not sure if you was it Zernaki Tepe. Do I have that right, or yeah. is it yep. okay? So you you made some discoveries on this ancient site called Zernaki Tepe, and from what I understand, you think this might be the key, and which has sort of been like the bedrock for everything you're about to do now with with this group of yeah. superstar fives, correct? Well, Zernaki Tepe actually, believe it or not, it didn't end up becoming the most important of the sites after it ended up being a. I ended up realizing it was more of a citadel. It is important. It absolutely is important, but not in terms of our understanding of like royal temples with these ancient symbols and this knowledge. That comes from other sites, and that's what we can talk about now. But that is how the story got started, though. And so when I realized these different levels of Shurupak proving the story and how that hero, that, that narrative from the cuneiform tablets, the last Sumerian king from that city, Remember, that's the city we have archaeological excavations that prove there was an, what's called an inundation layer, massive flood, where the original Sumerians found it 35 feet down. Jennifer blew our mind when I was showing her that. She was like, oh, my God. Because it really is like you get evidence to match up these ancient mystical stories. And that is how this connects, though. Because the last king in the tablets of Shurupak 
was this mystical priest and king known as Untapishtim or Zayasudra, who became the Christian figure of Noah. And that is absolutely fundamental to understand this because, first of all, take what you know about the Noah Christian story and sort of throw it out for a minute. Just kind of chuck it behind you and imagine that that's not really how it went and that they took a lot of, they changed a lot of things in the story. And, but it originally came from this concept of an ancient priest and a king who's part of a bloodline who had a family, three sons specifically, three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Anyone who knows those names will know where I'm going here. But they, the story goes that he was warned of a catastrophe that was supposed to be engineered by the gods to wipe out mankind and destroy us. Because of various reasons, and that's a whole other conversation, we could, a whole other show to talk about, believe it or not. So much that you could, you could mention in that segment. But the idea is that secretly, this council had said that none of humanity could never learn the truth of what was coming. They literally had a council. The Anuna had a council where they d- determined the fates of mankind. And they said that it's wild. And they said that they wanted to create a flood and they, don't all agree, they didn't all agree with it, but some were against it. And then some, they finally came together and agreed that they wouldn't tell, they would have an oath to not tell any, any people and just let it come through and wipe us out. Well, this last Sumerian king, the Noah figure, is secretly warned by his patron god Enki. That's where the whole thing gets incredible because we're finding evidence that the entire story was true. The entire story was true from the Sumerian, Akkadian, and Babylonian understanding. Okay, and what it is is that this event is coming, a flood of proportions we can't imagine. Maybe tectonic changes that created tsunamis, we don't know, but something like that. And he was warned that if he didn't create, create this massive boat craft, this boat made out of specifically cedar, which is the toughest wood you can have that won't rot. Cedar's amazing. Mm-hmm. Cedar and bitumen. Bitumen. He tells him to use bitumen. Bitumen is one of the most important things we have for building today. It's what you use to, to it's basically like glue, but it's a type of hard black adhesive that binds things unbelievably tough. It's like tar. Mm-hmm. If you want to think of it, it's more like, almost like a sealant of tar, okay? He told him, Enki, tells Noah, if you don't build this craft that's completely sealed, sealed off completely, you will die. And everyone else you know is going to die. And he was told he can't tell anyone else, the elders. He can't tell any of the elder elders at all. And he, he subsequently actually gets them to help him build it. Which is kind of interesting, actually. He gets them to help him build it, and he can't tell them, though, and they all die. And nobody actually, I don't know if people know about that part of the story. But it's So real quickly, sorry, let me interrupt before you continue, because I don't think a lot of people, well, maybe a lot of people who listen to this show might, but Anuna, Inky, these are, these are, clarify just real quickly, these are. Sumerian deities and gods that come from a time when, remember the Sumerians, that cooked culture that Jennifer said, where they had invented everything? That's the bizarre thing is like, how did they do that? Well, it seems more likely, and it seems very apparent based on what actually is said specifically. Like, for instance, go look up a cylinder seal called VA-243. It specifically shows Enki passing the plow to mankind. The plow, like agriculture, creating everything. And agriculture is the very foundation. If you were to take everything else that they invented, you know, astronomy, mathematics, metallurgy, all those things, Literally, none of those are nearly as important as agriculture. It's actually, agriculture is the building block of a civilization. Hmm. So it's no wonder that he's shown passing that because it's almost like, 
I'm going to pass the very thing you need to create and finally create a civilization. Anyway, that's just, that's why it's so bizarre, but that's Enki in that VA-243 passing the, the plow, right? And it's just fascinating because they seem to have some kind of an angelic-like role in our reality and almost demon-like role at times too, which is why I think they became that in Christianity. Within the realm of our reality and passing these things to us and teaching us things, and which is why I mentioned when that disaster was decided, it was by them to destroy us. So getting back, they Noah builds the last, Zayasudra Noah builds this craft with it for his family and some animals and the three sons, and he lands, the tablets truly state that, if you go read the Atrahasis, he lands on Mount Ararat, or the area of Mount Ararat, which is in Armenia, eastern Turkey area, where I am, where this Lake Vaughn is right now. And I always found that fascinating, because that's where the tablets ended, and I had known about that for a very, very, very long time, and I had been just trying to figure out what happened, though, where it went next. It's like a mystery that goes cold. You know, like you're in a, you're in a, some kind of a murder mystery and you run out of clues and you don't know where to go. It's like the clues ran out and mm -hmm. I had no idea where to go for years and years and years. Okay. Because we never found out what happened to that family. And you know, if you go through Christianity, just reading their text and Hebrew traditions, especially specifically the ancient Hebrew traditions that they talk about those families. They're very open. You can see charts where it says Japheth went to Europe, like Greece area. And it says that, Shem went to Egypt, and then Cham went to southeast, like uh, Iran, down to India. Uh, it shows the family charts and that we knew about that. But people didn't really believe it was real, or it was just one of those things that were like, well, we don't know if that's true or not. And that I knew about that, but there wasn't any evidence of any of it. It was like, it was all mythical and hypothetical. But there, but there are documents, stone tablets, and, and, and that actually show the chronology of these people and the kings and the kings list and all this sort well, yeah. of stuff. That's what's wild is that they, but they have Christian and Hebrew names. Mm. And so it's difficult to then connect the same names back to the original Sumerian version because you have to have a cipher. You have to know what the in-between is between those, those families and those lineages. And that's what we found. That is what well, I should say I found, or at least connected, at Lake Vaughn. And the, the way the story goes is that a year ago, I was researching just on my computer in an I don't even know how it happens. I mean, I'm sure many, many people listening to this who have gone down this path have had bizarre things just get interjected like a YouTube video or something just literally get put right in front of them that's very specific to exactly what they needed, though, at that moment. Mm -hmm. Some of people are going to be like, oh, it's just an algorithm pointing you towards something that you that you're already would have been naturally inclined to. But I don't believe that. There's way too many strange and unusual things that have been happening in my life and others that are kind of funneling you and pointing you a certain direction. Synchronicities. And that very much feel what? These synchronicities. Yeah, that very much is what this, this whole thing feels like, mm -hmm. is that because I'm such a megalithic nerd, and if some wall pops up that I've never seen, some, some ancient megalithic wall, if I've never s seen it, it's, you know, I'm a nerd. I'm like, that's what I study at night till midnight sometimes. So I saw this wall pop up as part of this excavation at Zernaki Tepe, and I was like, I've never seen that before. What is that? And I mean, it's new. They, they just uncovered 2017, 2018, 2019. I mean, in the archaeological world, if you think about Gobekli Tepe still being talked about as this revolutionary thing, that was found in 1944. Mm. It's old compared to these. These are new, new. In fact, these are the newest kids on the block. 
These are the newest significant archaeological excavations in the world. And most people don't even know they're happening. But that's, and I didn't either, but that's where that story went, is that just a single image popped up from Jazaki Tepe. And I said, those megalithic walls look just like Peru. I said, it got really bizarre because I knew that shouldn't exist. There's nothing in that area that's got megalithic stuff it was, that I had known about. It was like, it was like strange. Mm-hmm. It was unusual, like it shouldn't be there. And Zernaki Tepe got my attention. And I remember calling Billy Carson on the phone at Conscious Life Expo almost a year ago from right now and telling him specifically, I said to him, I remember, I said, these site at Zernaki Tepe is really bizarre. It's almost like it shouldn't be there. You know, again, it has all these polygonal walls and connections. I said, I think, I have a theory, Billy. I said, I have a theory that it connects to the bloodlines of the ancient Sumerians in Noah. Because how else could you explain this building out of nowhere when Mount Ararat is 54 miles from Lake Vaughan? And so I had that theory, and, but I couldn't find anything to support it other than just type, you know, theory. And then I moved on. And th- that's important because if someone has a theory and they try to bend evidence to it, that's not a scientist. Mm. Okay? You can't do that. You have to go where the science and, and the evidence goes. And so to, to show you that that's very much true, I literally like a kind of, no, I can't find anything on that. And I, I moved on my life for a couple months, went off and I was just researching and doing stuff. And so all of a sudden it happened again. Another image popped up. This one that was of Cavus Tepe. Incredible megalithic bas- basalt designs. And, and that's what launched the whole thing. Because when I combined that, I realized something. And this is something that I think people have to wrap their minds around. If you have the ability to create a giant, sophisticated megalithic wall with high precision, laser cut, you can like cut your finger on it still, you know, thousands of years later, you have to have a culturally, a super advanced culture that has arts and has reached a certain level of sophistication to be able to create those. Because you have to have stonemasons, you have to have a whole agricultural world already set in place. You have to have a civilization that's advanced. So when I found Cavus Tepe, and I knew that it was, that it was at the southern part of Lake Vaughan and that Zernaki Tepe was at the northern part, I knew what it meant, Devo. What's the meant... distance between the two? Sorry, just so I Well, can... I mean, it, it may be Roughly. like 30, 20, 30 miles. So it's, it's not, not that far. far but yeah. what it means is it's an entire civilization. Mm-hmm. See what I mean? Yeah. If you find that, then you know you're, you're looking at something that's huge, mm-hmm. that's not isolated, it's small. Okay, actually, Gobekli Tepe is a great example of that. It is actually kind of isolated and small. It is. It may be a big mountaintop with an astronomical temples, but the but the levels of like civil civilization being present around it, it's almost like it was a group that was there creating some kind of an astronom astronomical temple in that site specifically for a reason. But it wasn't like a super civilization all around it. And in fact, as we go along here, you'll see that the T-shaped pillar at Gobekli Tepe came from Lake Vaughan. That's the original same symbol that came from Lake Vaughan. So let me get back to that. Wait, when hold I on found... one second. So, yeah. so that same point you just made, I, I learned, and if this is true, please tell me, or it's not true, but Machu Picchu is the same situation. It was just reserved for a small group of perhaps elites. Yes. It was just yes. a celebratory site or some sort of a celebration. Well, not celebratory. Let me, let me it's, imagine that normal people can't go there. Mm-hmm. Like you can't. If you are an average person that, you know, just works at the, you know, you're farming or some, some kind of like a sure. civilian job, you'll, you'll never find yourself at Machu Picchu. I mean, like an Inca, if you're like an ancient, ancient Inca farmer. Yeah. That pyramid farmer, right? 
or step uh, terrace farmer. You would never go there because that's you're not allowed to. You're not even literally allowed to. It's for royals and initiates and priests, okay, that specifically take a pilgrimage that go up there, and it's a place to connect to the gods and the, and the universe, and it was reserved for only, like, powerful priests and kings and, and, and people that were of a high standing, royal standing, very much so with what you're going to see in comparison for Zanaki Tepe being a citadel, citadel of regular people, but a place like Ionis, Cavus and Kef, Kef Temple, the normal people could never go. They were truly royal sacred temples. And so only priests and kings and others of that kind of level w- would be able to go to these places. And that's wild in its own way to think about. But so I knew that there was, it was the beginning of something big. I knew that it was something that was in completely highly advanced civilization. But the caveat here is that the archaeologists that were excavating these sites thought it was part of what's called the Urartian civilization, which is only like 10,000 plus years off, in my opinion, in terms of uh, the narrative of, of history. But not only that, the Urartian civilization very much mimics a lot of these other Mesopotamian-like civilizations we see, like the Assyrians, building out of brick. Brick mortar uh, actually became kind of a semi-warlike civilizations, and the Urartians were like that. They never built anything without brick. It was just brick. That was why. Like, Let's wrap, wrap our heads around this because this is important to understand. Why would you only build out a brick if you, if you didn't have to? Well, because you, couldn't, you didn't have the means or sophistication to build any more sophisticated than that. Simple as that. It maybe had started off as a, as a different purpose with brick, but later on, cultures just didn't know how to make anything more advanced. And I really want to make that a strong emphasis of this conversation, that if you're seeing anything in the world that's made with brick, brick type of designs, unless you're talking about like Eridu or something, which is... Those places are completely not going to be part of this equation because they were buried by mud and preserved. So that's just a different part of the story. But all these other civilizations like the Akkadians and the Syrians and the Chaldeans and the Indus Valley cultures and all of those, they just build with brick, okay? But that's so important because it means they couldn't do anything more advanced. So when you get to these sites around Lake Bond, you see all this incredible basalt and andesite, some of the hardest stones in the world, with these incredible designs with the brick on top, it's very obvious. And Jennifer Deo agreed. The Urartians built with brick, and whoever built below that, that I'm calling the lost era at civilization, I'm coining them, they were highly advanced, highly sophisticated, and mysterious. So mysterious that I believe they were the origin point of not only megalithic building everywhere in the world, the ability to know how to do those giant stones. I think it's originated there, like to begin. But also these teachings like the first cross and chalice, but the teachings of the triptych doorways and how to reach higher states of consciousness seems to all come from there. Hmm. Not in the way that you might think. Not in the way where that's the last place that we have evidence for it of. I want to be really clear about that. More so that like the Sumerians seem to have invented all those things where it looks like it was passed down to them. Like here, Remember Enki and the plow, VA243, go look it up. He's passing the plow. Instead of thinking that they invented, how about that they, all that stuff was passed to them to then create that civilization? Same thing here. I think like Vaughn, getting back to that story of Noah, he lands on Mount Ararat with his sons and his family. Tablets state that Enlil comes furious, comes down from the heavens and says, no man was ever supposed to survive the flood. 
and then it goes on to basically the, temp the tablets fracture off. But what happened after that point, and I have to go into, a, I wouldn't even call it speculation. I'd call it academic. I don't know. You, I'm trying to think of the right phrase for it. I'm proposing uh, a theory that has very strong evidence behind it. Okay, we'll call it whatever that want to say that is a hypothesis that has good evidence backing it. And that is that Ionis, which became the central and most royal and sacred temple of all of them around Lake Vaughan, and was the place where something was lowered that had never existed before. Imagine if you were, say, in charge of cycles, and there's a cycle coming where humanity can, can reach the golden age. And you, what if you were to, to lower all the means to do that, and then they do? And that narrative fits exactly with this mystery around the world on how these civilizations could have re reached these grand means to create temples and pyramids that are like aligned to specific constellations and the, the harmonic ratio of energy and the, the ratio of the moon, the sun, all these things that are wild. It starts to make sense that how they could have done those around the world if you had some kind of an origin point where the intention was literally to create a golden age. Like if that was the, that was the intention at Ionis was let's lower the knowledge of how to reach God and divinity and let's lower the knowledge of how to build temples to reach the stars and all of those things. Imagine that happened at one single location, location in history, one spot. And I believe Ionis, Ionis Temple, Haldi Temple at Ionis. Okay, it's called Ionis Kalesi officially, just like Kef Kalesi, but the word Kalesi means fortress. So I don't want to use that word. So I'm calling it Ionis Temple and Kef Temple and various things because they weren't fortresses at all. That's, again, a misdirection on, on what their purpose was. But, and I, I'll let you jump in a second, Diva, but I just want to say that what became first one site, Zernaki Tepe, blossomed into like five sites and then even underwater temples underneath Lake Vaughan, over 100 feet underneath the lake. And it's the only megalithic temple wall underwater in the world. And that also proves its age. And so what we're looking at is a super civilization that was building here and reaching the stars ascension-wise and then like passed it around the world. And that, that narrative has been what has been protected all along. And of course, we haven't gotten into the details of it all yet, but I want to at least you know, bring that to you, to that place of just saying, we're now investigating a mystery, okay? And that mystery has led to me, and I want to just add, update this, that mystery has led to being so big, so big, that when I discovered Ionis, I ran around the room three times. <laughs> I know it's really weird to say that, but I was so excited because I've said this for so long that the second I saw Ionis, I knew. It was I, like, imagine, I imagine your wife is used to these little celebratory runs around the room. From she wasn't there. But the thankfully, <laughs> I was alone. Thankfully, I was alone that day. No, but it, 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 I, knew, I knew instantly. It was like, that's, that's it. That's the missing link I've been looking for. And, and it's grown from that to truly being something where I moved on from Gaia and started my own company called Ionis Legacy. Literally named after Ionis and preserving the legacy of knowledge that came from that temple. And I created, I created a company that then is the founding behind a, a film that is now exceeding, it's going to have a budget that exceeds half a million, million dollars. Yeah, I heard you talking about and that. And we are going to be bringing experts around the world, and we're going to be going to, right now we're going to four countries. I'm not going to spill a secret one that people are not going to even imagine we're going to add to this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to spill it yet. 
but we're now going to four countries instead of two. And we're basically taking a narrative from Turkey, from this Lake Vance, these civilizations like Ionis and Kef, and we're trying to prove that it's the missing link connector all around the world. And so that's why we're going to be taking groups with experts of, in archaeology and biblical studies and ancient texts and megalithic building to go to Lake Vaughan, to go to these sites and try to prove to see if this mystery and my hypothesis about it being the origin of literally everything is true. I'm still volunteering my time like I did the first <laughs> time I met you as the chronologist for this just to take photos and document it. So if you need somebody, I'm your man. Okay. Um, so as you these four different countries that you're going to be filming in, this is that connection with these megalithic sites that you talked about and these comparisons that are drawn and between symbols. and the symbols too. Yeah. So like even like between Mount Ararat and these megalithic sites that you're talking about in South America, like was it Tiwana? Tiwanaku, Pumapunku, Pumpu. and then specifically in Peru, where um we're going to be focused on Oyate Tambo. Wow. And the connections that you're seeing, and I know some of this already, not what you're about to unveil but or, or discover, but it's crazy to me that a lot of people don't understand that all around the world there are similar megalithic sites that share common denominators and in, in development and whether in, in hieroglyphics, uncoverings, all these sorts of things, and then they're all sort of interrelated and interconnected yeah. potentially. That's, that's the idea. you know. And I have to give so much credit to people like Graham Hancock and Robert Bavall and Robert Schock and John Anthony West. And I mean, we could have, we could go over about 20 names on that list right now. Okay. Of people that started this, the ones that put themselves out there to show, look, this, this narrative doesn't make sense. Right. Mm. And you know, the first people that ever did that, we got to give them credit for people that don't know the history of, of this alternative side where we're trying to blow this whole thing open. It really started with John Anthony West. Mm. That man is a hero. He, singular man, John Anthony West. He then brought in Robert Schock, who's a geologist, who came there skeptical, which is interesting how that whole thing went, which you're supposed to, if you're a scientist, you should be skeptical. But John Anthony West was in Egypt and he's studying the Sphinx enclosure. And he, with other ex, some other people that were helping him as well, were firmly believed, and Robert Baval as well. Robert, Robert, John Anthony West and Robert Baval were there in Egypt. And they firmly believed that it was not, the narrative that we're told is not right on the Sphinx being part of the dynastic pharaohs and all this stuff. And then that's when Robert came to Egypt and went to the Sphinx enclosure and studied it and then came out with his, his analysis that it was not wind weathering, but water weathering. And it had to have been from the younger Dryas or before. That is literally what started this entire movement. I think it's important that we take a moment to honor the late John Anthony West, who is no longer with us, mm -hmm. for that incredible contribution to start something that would lead to this, mm -hmm. to start to start something that could lead to us fundamentally changing our entire history, but getting to the origin of what may be our, our the very divinity of who we are. Which goes back to the original question at the outset of the introduction to my friend, why should you understand the past? Because it's people like that, people like John Anthony West, people like yourself, and all the other names that you just dropped, that are changing the actual paradigm of everything that we now believe that will yeah. eventually change what we could potentially evolve into. So yeah. it's phenomenal. Like Understanding the past is critical to, to being able to step into the future to me. But especially when the secrets and answers to especially the greatest questions we've ever asked were already answered then. Mm. It's, it's amazing to me that we think we're trying to find something like this way. Mm. We're trying to, have, oh, uh, I'm going to go through like 
I'm going to, I'm going to go to amazing, like the best yogurt retreat you've ever seen in Costa Rica. And I'm going to find this secret. Like we already have the answers guys. We don't, they're already there. The ancients literally mapped it out for us in the most comprehensive way possible from the, from the Egyptians with the book of the dead that understand basically the afterlife, like mapping out the afterlife journey of a soul. It's right there. The Egyptians already did it. They mapped it out all the way to ancient, the Hermetica with literally the Hermetica. If you haven't read it with Hermes, the Greek mm -hmm. Hermes is literally an understanding of the fundamental constants of the universe. Mm -hmm. They're already there. They're, you could go to Vedic texts. You could go to ancient Mayan texts with their calendar and understanding of cycles. You could go to, of course, all this amazing Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian stuff. All of that. It's there. They're all the same teachings. They're all, they're all literally the same teachings about how to reach higher states of energy. And it's, I find it fascinating to me or almost um, even absurd a little bit that we don't put enough emphasis on those ancients and think, and maybe that's just because of how they've been presented to us for our whole life as being primitive and nomadic and not something that we could put on a pedestal of knowledge like we, sh we really should be doing. Well, you mentioned that education system itself had been rewritten in the, you said the 50s by Rockefeller. But if, from my perspective, and as I start to really uncover this and, and learning from people like yourself, it's almost like this information is being suppressed intentionally to me. Why, why would they suppress so much information that is foundationally important for the understanding of who we are? How, well, that's a really difficult question to answer because the deeper I've gone down it, the more I've realized it's not, it's not what we think. Let's say you have to have certain things happen for the development of a civilization. I'm going to go super high level with this answer instead of going low level because I think people are smart enough now. Mm. Imagine humanity is uh, governed by certain energies and certain, uh, certain dynamics that are kind of lost on us where we are actually governed by cycles, right? We're governed by cycles of consciousness and energy. And those cycles of consciousness and energy ebb and flow based on the 2,100-year procession of the equinox or the zodiac. And there are 12 of them. So the energy relates to each age has different energies and different, different movements. Now, take that and then go to India and go to the Vedic Yuga cycles, okay? The Yuga cycles describe how humanity is, humanity is literally governed by that energy. It's not by individuals that are playing that defining role in all of humanity. No, not at all. They're just like actors. Mm. Imagine a more of where the Yugas talk about how humanity ebbs and flows between golden ages, bronze ages, silver ages, and then back to golden ages again. But you, you don't go from a golden age to a silver age. You go from a golden age to a bronze age, which means you get knocked down. Hmm. That's exactly what we've seen throughout history with ancient civilizations. We got to stop thinking of us as being the pinnacle of our entire story. Maybe we're there technologically, but not in other ways, is that we have to imagine that there was another golden age already that's existed. And they are the ones who built all these amazing things, in my opinion, including the stories of Atlantis and all of those, all from that time period. Okay? catastrophes wiped them all out and you mentioned like something like Machu Picchu when then the people that built Machu Picchu originally the foundations they all disappear and get wiped out then imagine an indigenous group in the Amazon that had survived because they knew how to be perfect in harmony with the land and, and, and all around them imagine they are exploring 
one day. They're making their way through the jungle. And they pop their head up. And they're looking around. And they see on top of a mountaintop a jungle temple. Like mysterious and lost. And they go up there. And they're looking around. They're finding maybe some ancient writings. Some mysterious symbols. And they're trying to figure out what it is. And then through them, it, it literally elevates their civilization to become the Inca. That's who the Inca are. They're the indigenous groups from the Amazon that found the remnants of an ancient lost civilization, which is why they were only able to build with more primitive stones and smaller sure. work on top. But they still supposedly had bloodline descendants that would come back from the royals, and that's what the Incan royals were. Same thing as the Maya, and the same thing as the Aztec and Olmec. Same thing. Much more ancient, ancient story that had been there that then other indigenous groups found and then built on top and tried to mimic them. That's why the Maya and the Aztec became so uh, warlike and bloodthirsty and all those horrible things, because that's not the original civilization that built those things. For instance, a perfect example of that is Teotihuacan in Mexico. The Aztecs specifically state that they found Teotihuacan. They found it. They didn't, they even, they're like, no, we didn't build it. No, they found it. And what's wild about Teotihuacan want to connect this narrative around the world is that Teotihuacan is, is based on three pyramids, specifically three pyramids, okay? Hold on to that, that understanding of three. Think about astronomically, the earth, the moon, and the sun. Father, the sun, right? In Christianity, the mm. trinity. Now imagine these triptych doorways at Lake Vaughan showing three doors of ascension for how we can reach higher states. Balancing the, the harmonic left and right side and then finding this ascension through the, the, the balance of mind, body, and soul. The same thing. It's the same thing. Okay? That's embodied in, like, everything they do. Now, imagine Teotihuacan add another layer. Not only that, but imagine they have three pyramids. The, the Pyramid of the Sun, the Pyramid of the Moon, and the Pyramid of Quetzalcoatl. Okay? And they are exactly mimicking the three belt stars of Orion above. And then across the world in Egypt, the three great pyramids exactly the same thing on the ground mimicking the three stars of orion if you take those two locations you create a synergy on the entire earth where two places are exactly matching that energy of those two places creating that heaven on earth bond that is what the ancients understood that we have no comprehension of today wild did do you want to continue with what you're doing with it or am i can i jump into some questions i have just you around go the ahead central... and jump into some questions because i mean it's um yeah, we can. I got about 20 minutes left. Well, we're going to need way more than 20 minutes. Real quickly, this is a separate question. Just esoterically speaking, why go from a golden to a bronze? What's the, sort of the, if you were the creators or you were the people moving into this phase, is it because the civilization was wiped out and so they have to start over? Or was there some intentional push to, to degrade back down? No, that seems to be inherently built into the cycles here. That's what I mean. It gets bizarre. It's not like we're alone in the universe and it's just random things that are happening here. It's the complete opposite. It seems that we're part of like a grand story, that this is like a, a stage, that we're playing out these fundamental roles with learning moral lessons with our own soul from an energetic standpoint of existing in a physical experience. And that that's our, it's like a teaching world here. We're part of some kind of a karmic cycle that's on the earth but is, is being determined by ordainers of mm. destinies. That's what they call themselves. 
It's a learning that, paradigm. Interesting. Like they call them, they, they literally talk about how it's like the ages are determined and ordained in, ahead of time, meaning that it's decided before it even happens. And so it means that the yuga cycles and this, these cosmic laws that exist, cosmic, is that we're part of some, a cycle here that is based on this need or built-in requirement that civilizations, once they reach a golden age, then get knocked down back to a bronze age and have to make their way back again. Just, amazing. It's, well, it's amazing because it, it exactly aligns itself with the ebb and flow of natural progression of energy. If you think of something going like this, it's like our stories playing into that ebb and flow in the entire universe. Yeah. And, 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 we're, and we're part of it. And the powers that be today already, uh, I, I suspect, actually already know this, which is I think why they play to... into it. Yeah. 100%. I mean, if you yeah. look at the, the 1990s and 2000s and in this time period we're in, even during just during Pisces with how much war there's been, it's almost like it gets perpetuated because it can happen and it's, it's allowed to happen. But it only, but I want to give a caveat to that for those who think that's a fearful or a very dark place to, to exist in, is that this is a beautiful concept to wrap your head around to understand is that if an age is, the darker an age is, and the more negative an age is, it just means the more positive the next age will be. And if you have an age where not much happens, then it's kind of a wild card. But that's how the, age, the energy flow works, is the more negative a trough of you know, down negative energy of war and destruction happens, the more positive the opposite end of that is going to be. It's it's that interaction of energy, right? Mm -hmm. Where it, that, it has to balance itself. That and yin that yang. Is, exactly. And that yeah. yin and yang is exactly a way to describe it. And that is why we are on the cusp of transitioning into the age of Aquarius when overwhelmingly everyone knows, everyone, the universe knows, it's an understanding that Aquarius will be the new positive, if not golden age in humanity. All right, let me ask you a few questions because I need more than 20 minutes. Considering these ancient texts that, you, that you've talked about, like the Epic of Atrahasis, where they, yeah. des they, they describe these gods creating humans for labor, how sure. does this align with our, with our current understanding of human evolution and societal development? How, how, what's the alignment there? That's such a difficult question to answer, and I'll do the best I can. Of course, I'm not a scientist. I'm well-studied, but I'm not a scientist. But I can tell you that there seems to be two things going on. Okay, two things going on fundamentally when you look at evolution. Evolution is complex in my mind because it looks like evolution happens on a micro level, so called micro evolution, and not on a macro level, in my opinion. Mm. So I'm not saying evolution isn't real, absolutely. Evol and what it means is micro changes in evolution are adaptations, things like warmer coats or stronger right? Mm -hmm. Smarter. Things that were their local adaptations, but there's an existing form, we're going to call it, right? A form that exists as that being. That form cannot just take any shape of any kind. That doesn't make sense. You cannot have a giraffe then turn into a whale. You can't have a lion, you know, turn into like a porcupine. They're not doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And the evidence behind that is probably the platypus from Australia, which is the weirdest species on the earth that is literally 
a mammal, but it's a bird who also is venomous. It's the weirdest creature on the entire planet. And what it tells me is that there's something else going on here. There's something else here going on. And it's not because, I mean, look at us. Look, look at us. Pre-200,000 years ago, yeah, there was like a primitive hominid here, Neanderthal. Yeah, absolutely. And then before that, Denisovians. 100% in agreement. And they were primitive hominid beings. And they had their limitations. Okay? They didn't come from a cow. No, that doesn't make sense. Is that there's, there's something else going on here. And there's something else that you find out through things like the Enuma Elish. And then reading some of the Vedic text. And it gets into this concept of not Christianity creation in their aspect, but some kind of a creation that occurs with like beings, like through reality, through manifestation. Okay. And I think that we are also have that ability, but we just don't understand how to unlock it yet. We're like little children that have no concept how to be adults yet. Okay. And they seem the Anuna and these creator like beings, they describe how. They put the foundations in place to create the environment where things could thrive. Like literally going and making a place hospitable. It talks about earth in the Enuma Elish. It's really odd. I will, if anyone has never read the Enuma Elish, it's very bizarre because it talks about like a proto-earth that didn't exist like it does now in collisions in our solar system. And how specifically though, they talk about this thing called Tiamat. Okay. The more that I've studied Tiamat, and I, I know there's people that are going to listen to this and disagree with my opinion because of Zachariah Sitchin. That's fine. But my understanding in studying Tiamat and studying the Numa Elish is that Tiamat was like an angry proto-Earth. Okay? It was like an, an Earth that was completely unbalanced. Because there's this thread that's, that's shown throughout Mesopotamia and ancient tablets of them coming and almost like conquering the forces of nature. Okay? like having to almost control over them and conquer them in order for what we are to be able to become manifested. But in order for that to happen, it would take billions of years. Wrap your head around that for a minute because crazy. George Smith, the greatest Assyriologist Sumerian expert in history, bar none, he's the John Anthony West of unlocking all this. George Smith cracked the first Sumerian tablet in over a thousand years. He is literally the hero of all of this. He studied more tablets than anyone else in the world, and he's my personal hero. And in his book, The Chaldean Account of Genesis, he summarizes everything. He summarizes his understanding of all tablets, everything. The great-grandfather of the Sumerians. And he said that the only thing that makes sense to him, and I'm paraphrasing, only thing that makes sense to him looking at our history and, and the role of the Anuna. The Anuna was the original Sumerian name, and Anunnaki became the Akkadian Assyrian name. He says, the only thing that makes sense with them, as a scientist, is that they came backwards and forwards in Earth history for specific reasons. He said that. A scientist. The greatest mind of that time. But he says backwards and forwards, which to me only means time travel. How else would you describe that? And if you read the Enuma Elish about this like proto-Earth and creating the environment necessary where eventually something can happen, it makes total sense that they would literally be part of the architects of our reality. And that is exactly what it looks like, is that evolutionary changes happen on a micro level, but 
the, these creatures that exist here and things that are here seem to be part of a much more complex process than that. Okay. And we seem to be the very foundation and the, the height and the purpose, we'll call it. And that's what's kind of wild about it. It seems to be all for us. And I know that might be hard for some people to wrap their heads around. But when they describe it, they describe it as like creating animals, but creating certain ones that could feed us and things that fish in the sea. And they describe it as like creating a world that's perfect, like a harmony with nature and all these things, but almost to all be there so that we could then have a story, so that we could then have something to then go off on this epic story. Um, and then it would it'd be like almost manifested as an experiment here on earth. We don't know if that's happening anywhere else. We don't. We don't know. We don't even know where our souls come from. Like who knows if our souls even come from this universe, mm. but if it comes from another universe that we, we don't exist in a physical form and this universe is literally the purpose of it is like a teaching universe for souls to learn how to, how to go through a physical body and how to experience all these things. It gets more and more bizarre and it truly feels like it's more of some kind of a simulation that is based on like a game yeah. of watching us ascending and growing and, and, and upping up in our game only to be knocked down to have to do it all over again. It's like the ultimate form of entertainment. Yeah, that's the, that's the theory I subscribe to. You talked about in the earlier part of the show, Noah, and the, the animals and the ark and all the different things. For me, when I read that, and I've, I've gone back through the Bible and read this now multiple times since I first uncovered what you just said, was that a more of a metaphor? Like, there's no—I mean, they couldn't put all the animals yeah. on this yeah. ark. So, was it sort of like a DNA compilation that they were collecting, as opposed to actual animals? The first thing I want to point out is that flood mentioned in the deluge, the the great flood that's mentioned in those tablets. I don't think is a flood across the entire planet. Obviously, nothing would survive. It's not like every continent had tsunamis that wiped out all of life. No, that's first of all, we need to make that really clear. But that doesn't mean there weren't parts of the planet that were literally wiped out. And I do believe that. There were places that the catastrophes were so severe that like nothing survived. And then things had to come back over time. But imagine isolated areas of the earth that were completely destroyed, which is why go look at a place like Tiwanaku or go look at a place like Kef Temple at Lake Vaughan. You see evidence of things are just strewn everywhere. Like their blocks were picked up and just rolled. In fact, there's a place outside of Cusco in Peru that is outside of Oyetitambo in that area. There's a gigantic block, a stone that's literally the size of like a building. It, it, I don't even know how many tons it must be. It must be like 300 plus tons. Okay. It's got to be it's maybe a thousand tons. Anyway, it's enormous. And I don't know if people talk about this, but it's really bizarre. But this, this giant mass of rock, has a staircase carved into it. Beautiful, beautiful staircase, like highly advanced. Have you seen this? Yeah, I have seen it. Highly advanced staircase, but it's upside down. It's phenomenal. It's on the wrong, it's like, it's on the side where you obviously can't walk up and it's like, yeah. it's up you on, on the eye. But what it, what it means is imagine a wave, a tsunami, miles high, so enormous that it could pick that rock up and just tumble it and just throw it somewhere and then just ups, upside down like that. That's why all these civilizations were destroyed. That's why even though they were masters of the reality and masters, they were trying to balance the earth. And I think they were trying to prevent this, actually. Hmm. Younger Dryas, specifically. 
not the event before. They didn't know about that. But they seem to have the, the events because the Younger Dryas was like a 1,500-year event of, of events. Subsequently, most of them around the world just didn't make it. And it was like whoever survived tried to pass on that legacy to indigenous and other groups. And that's why we were knocked down in the Bronze Age because that's exactly how history is supposed to play out. Like, kind of like a, kind of a sick game, actually, of, of causing us to go through that over and over again. But there's a teaching in it. There's a purpose in it. And I am beginning to think that this is important to say. I am very much in the belief system with everything that I've studied is that maybe that cycle of getting knocked down is done. I'm in, under the belief that we are entering a golden age and that it's going to take us places we've never been and that perhaps everything that's happened before us has been because of for right now so that we can look back at a mysterious time long ago to connect us to the earth and the universe at a time where we literally become lost in materialism and technology and AI and become almost like machines in some ways. How else would you be able to connect back to the very divinity of who you really are in the universe than to have the greatest mysteries be held in civilizations that reach great heights and then we're, and then we're destroyed? It would be the ultimate way to have something to look back on to be able to then put in, in practice for where you are now. And it would be, plus, you know, truthfully, it's like the most amazing story you could ever imagine. And I think that's another big part of it too. Don't underestimate the idea of a good story. Okay. Yeah. Done for perpetuity? Done for boredness. No, no, no. The golden age. You said your theory is that we're done with the disasters and the bronze yes. and we're moving into this golden age. And that we're, we're coming out of the silver age right now, in my opinion. So will this concept of this being knocked down, are you saying that this golden age we're stepping into, is this a new phase or that this is now for perpetuity going forward? I, I believe that the one thing that the ancients didn't have that we have, which is why we're going to make it. Is, to, is the technological means we have. Hmm. While technology can be your greatest destruction, it can also be your greatest ally in some ways. Mm -hmm. I think that the ancients did everything they could to balance and prevent the Younger Dryas disasters, but they weren't able to. Evidence for that is in Egypt and Saqqara with the giant granite boxes and others in the Great Pyramid of Giza that some of them were blown open. Like energy surged through so powerful that it like blew them up. To me, that gets into my mind when you look at the function of the pyramids and this, this concept is that perhaps there's some kind of a harmonic, energetic, resonant balancer of the earth because they're in conjunction with the ratio of the moon and the sun. And so it makes sense to me that they're in a cohesion balancing relationship there. But whatever that event was, events of the Younger Dryas, and I believe was a coronal mass ejection, that was the primary cause of that. But that event was so severe that it almost like overloaded their systems and then destroyed everything. And then they were all like systematically wiped out from, I mean, look at Atlantis. It's very well described that it literally sunk into the ocean through subduction. The entire landmass that I believe was west of the, of the Azores. And you can still see it very well on bathymetric ch charts. You can see a massive, and Randall Carlson does a great job talking about how it's what's called a, sub, a, a submerged continent. It's what it's called. It's a miniature submerged continent off of the Azores, and the Azores are simply the volcanoes that stick above the water. It's a whole landmass that it's subducted from plates, and that's what we're beginning to see evidence of. That's what happened literally to some of these civilizations is tectonic plates changes. We're so in, in, just over, overwhelming and beyond our comprehension that imagine 
imagine earthquakes that that plates are moving and tsunamis are going around the world and the climate's all chaotic and i mean volcan volcanism is going off everywhere and it's just like a wild earth and that's i think what led to them ultimately just disappearing and it becoming a myth and a legend for us to find and then uncover those breadcrumbs that lead us back to the very story that we've been trying to figure out all along with who we are and what our place is in the universe. So are you suggesting that the former human races that survived prior to us were aware of their imminent decline, this imminent disaster that was about to come? Well, remember when I was saying before about Lake Vaughn and those in the in the the story of the Noah story is that mm -hmm. I don't believe that that destruction was any part of the Younger Dryas. I think it was a complete different period, like way earlier, much much more ancient. But in, but that event created the understanding that that happens. So imagine the sons of Noah, Japheth, Shem, and Ham. They repopulate like the seeds of humanity, like it's described, but in a way where they travel around and they rebuild and they create these incredible things. Do I have this? Yes. I've never showed this to anyone in the world, but it's going to be something I recently talked about. Okay. About a year and a half ago, I was investigating this, just exploring, and I came across, anyone who's never read this book, this book right here. Okay. This man, John Taylor, connected this in the 1800s. He had a theory that Shem or Cham from the descendants of Noah built, built the great pyramids of Giza and others. And can I read a little, a little thing from here really quick? Please do. Would you mind? No, please do. Um, I've wanted to read this for a long time. There's an excerpt at the begin at the end that almost like makes me want to tear up. It's so powerful. People don't, don't talk like this anymore. They don't understand things like we used to. And this is a perfect example of it, but I want to read this because it has to do with an understanding of the ancients in a way where we forgot. We forgot who we are. We forgot where we've been. And it's important in, in, that we finally find our way home. And I want to read a little piece from this that is going to touch some people's hearts. And it has to do with the sons of Noah and these civilization of the era civilization, but where they went. It doesn't talk about like Vaughn or Turkey. It just simply talks about where they went. And it, but it focuses on Egypt. Because John Taylor was trying to, he had strong theories that suggested that the Great Pyramids of Giza wasn't built by who we think. It was actually built by the sons of Noah hmm. as this ancient, I know, and, it, and I ended up finding evidence that I think supports the entire thing. Wow. I think he's right. I think he's 100% right. And that gets into like, well, was Thoth like one of the sons of Noah? Hmm. It gets into a deep realm of that. But I want to read a couple sections from this where he talks about these builders, okay? Japheth, Shem, and Ham. He talks about them moving around the world and doing things that are really bizarre and unusual. But he specifically is focused on Egypt, okay? But imagine it's other places as well. He says this on page 222, and he's kind of summarizing everything. He says, they came into the country as strangers. They were not of the same race nor of the same religion as the Mizoram, who preceded them in their occupation. They did not invade as conquerors. But as it tells us, they easily subdued their, the local power without a battle. Like mystical. Like that's described what Viracocha did, by the way, in South America, where the indigenous rose up against him and he did something magical. And then they just sat back down and then listened to him. 
just like what this says. They must, therefore, have come either in such lar large numbers as to make opposition hopeless, or they must have been received as benefactors by the common people. It was only after their departure that their memory was, was culminated by the stories told of their, of their visit. They were evidently emanated by a strong desire to perform a certain task, and when they had accomplished it, they left the country of their own accord, confining the care of the original inhabitants of those wonderful works by which they had enriched and ennobled the land. They never returned to claim any interest in the fruits of their labors, but occupied some other country in which they erected no such monuments as these. Meaning they never built any other things such as the great pyramids of mm -hmm. Egypt, just like that. It was specific to that location. I'm, and, I'm, and let me just read another couple little spots here because yeah. it's beautiful. And we can go a little bit longer. It's okay. Okay. He said, this is so beautiful. Try to close your eyes and envision this for a minute. To build monuments of so vast of size in which no human being was ever laid in the 1800s. To build them for their own promise and then to leave them as soon as they were completed in order to go to some other country for the rest of their lives and to be buried in some obscure graves is too absurd a supposition to be entertained concerning any rational creatures. For one purpose alone does it seem reasonable to conclude that any men should have undertaken so prestigious a labor without looking for the slightest advantage to themselves. It says, it is evident then that they might serve as the pyramids, might serve as a record and memorial to the end of time, to form a standard of measurement of length, capacity, and weight to which all nations might appeal, to the common authority in their dealings with each other. But to attribute to the founders so grand and liberal design is to affirm that they were the greatest philosophers and the greatest benefactors the world ever knew. This title shall be justified then in conferring upon the sons of Shem. Wow. There it is. Mr. John Taylor, a genius, who connected this already in the 1800s. And this is a book I think 99.9% .9 of the world has never even heard of. And it's an ancient lost book that I found and it came into my life for a very specific reason, I believe. But that is the kind of men we're talking about. They're called the men of renown. And they're talked about during Atlantis in the ancient proto-Greek time period. When something, when we existed in a time when we were like demigods and we had an incredible understanding of our own divinity and connection to the universe that we no longer have. And I command John Taylor for allowing us to finally remember and bring to light how incredible those achievements and how incredible those men were and what they were leaving behind so that we could get to where we're going to go in the future. It's like perpetual timepieces all across the world. You talked at the outset of the show about the agricultural being sort of the epic of humanity, like the benchmark for, for all great civilizations. The discovery of this uniform and this, these advanced grain sites, and I think you said Shanidar Cave, it clearly suggests some sort of artificial intervention that went on. How does that, I guess, how does the implication of 
knowing that somebody had to or something had to have intervened to create this idea of agriculture out of nowhere. Yeah. How does that play into sort of once this information becomes mainstream, which mm -hmm. the hope is that it will, how does that play out in sort of the the overall ethos of of us as a human species and what that means for us? Because that's going to rewrite literally everything. everything that we thought we knew about who we were, where we came from, yeah. religion, everything. Like it literally wipes it out. Imagine that that is the single controlling factor in us right now. Not just controlling history or all these things, but that factor you just said is what is holding us back. Our understanding and acceptance of what we are beyond this to finally see this is what is now happening. I remember like literally remember the exact moment that I figured this out where, you know, years and years and years and years ago, I remember being alone and I think I was outside and I was contemplating and I studied all the ancient stuff and what they were saying. And I was like, so we're not just alone in a random universe where we don't matter and we just die and we turn into a grave. And then <laughs> the only people that are remembered are the ones that either did something terrible or are these rare heroes in history. And really if someone decided to push a button, on a nuclear weapon, we would all just be systematically destroyed through the collision of everything that would happen. And then we would be, we would disappear and no one would ever know about our story. And it would just be like a blip in, in the universal timeline of everything that exists. That mindset is what has controlled humanity. That mindset that we don't matter, that we're insignificant, that we're nothing, nothing more than an evolved ape that then can take and consume the resources around him, them. And just take, 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 and think that just because we're smart, that we're the top of the evolutionary chain. And so it gives us dominion over everything in a way where, ha ha, like we can, no, we need to strip all of that away. Destroy that ego side of, of us and surrender to our place in the universe as being a fundamental role that we're playing in the entire outcome of this, like a great stage. And that I think the most beautiful thing, I remember crying when I came to that realization. I remember that because it was like I had known my entire life that we weren't just insignificant and nothing. And that when you have that moment where you realize it, it's like the most beautiful moment of your entire life because you realize that you're part of the most incredible story that's ever been told. And it changes everything on how you view reality. And that is where we're going to. What's so phenomenal to me about a lot of this, and it's hard to pick one central topic that really blows my mind, but to think that there was a species of something that came here and created us, potentially genetically modified us and created who we are today, means that there was something or someone or some entity that's greater than them, which sort of controls, maybe they're millions of years in advance from us. But something else bigger controls even that. And so how big does that ultimately get? Like, wh where does that end? And, and it's so, so when you, you talked about a simulation and there's yeah. somebody programming us, for me, like, if you really just stop and sit and think in my layman mind here, I'm like, that is literally mind-boggling to consider. Yeah. Well, but I, this is where I differ from some of my colleagues, and I have total respect for their opinions in this. But my personal opinion is that we've been looking at this completely wrong. We've been looking at this, this in the lens of like an extraterrestrial UFO coming from somewhere else. And I think it's wrong. Oh, really? I just, yes, I do not. I do not think that's how we should look at this. Okay. I think we should look at this as 
everything that I've studied is that the Anuna are in rather than being like an alien or extraterrestrial, they're more like angels and demons. And we are too. We are them. So they, we were, we, we know because it's described in the tablets that we were created literally exactly in their image. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's not like they're like some gray alien that came here and they're like, and then they create us with like, no, it's, I don't believe that. I think a lot of that is a psyop to scare us. And that the reality is that, is that it's probably way too difficult for interspecies that are civilizations that are in another star system. First of all, the progression of technology and consciousness would make it so that your evolution of your consciousness and energy would end up outpacing your technological means eventually. You know what that means? Say it again. We, see, we keep thinking that technology is the greatest height we're ever going to achieve. Okay, okay, I understand. Yeah, I think it's a very misleading thing, and I would love to talk to Elon Musk about that. But I don't. I think that it's wrong. I think it's just a factor. I think it's a piece of our development as technology. I think the greatest thing in terms of evolutionary-wise that we go down that road is about that journey within and then becoming like gods, unlocking these, these inherent things within us that have been dormant, telekinesis, all these abilities we have within us to literally realize that consciousness is not localized to the brain and that we're part of a quantum-like existence that is all over the universe. So if the universe is, if that's how it works, is that, our, that we are a quantum being, then why aren't they? Of course they are. They're the same as we are, but they're way more powerful, in my opinion. I think they're, and this is hard for some people to wrap their heads around, but I think their role are, is creators in the universe from a prime source. And I think that prime source or God is not something that can interact and be a part of it. I think it's like you lay out, it's like almost like if you have like the outline of a story written, but then how it actually plays out, you can't touch it. Like it's almost like you become the totality of it all and then you allow it to all unfold and, and, and go based on free will and destiny. See, those are the two things that are going to collide here. Mm. The concepts of free will and destiny are huge in this because I feel like a lot of our lives are based on the combination of both. It's not one or the other, it's both. And what that means is if destiny is as important as free will, I think it means that the destiny of where we go is already determined. And then it's more about like seeing how the story unfolds. Like there's no way that it's going to get there. Imagine you know how a movie ends, right? You pop it in. Oh my God. Remember back in the day of VHS? Yeah. You remember, right? Where yeah. somebody like doesn't rewind it and like you pop it. Remember you yeah. pop a VHS and yeah. it's like at the end, you're like, no. Yeah. And then you got to remember people don't remember. 15, like, you 15 minutes to rewind it. <laughs> we imagine you pop that VHS in and you see humanity like, We'll save what that, that is for another conversation, but you see us in this divine place of we don't even need our bodies anymore. Something incredibly powerful. And then you're like, then you rewind that VHS and you're like halfway through and we're like killing each other in the Middle Ages. And then, you know, and like in the religious institutions are like controlling people and there's war and bombs going off and nuclear weapons and submarines attacking each other and planes blah, bombing everyone you're like how in the heck do they go from that to that like no way like no way and i think even the creator beings the anuna these angelic like beings that made us are even wondering that too they're like no way really truly gets into this 
perfectiveness of our story and how everything in the universe is perfect. Everything is literally perfect balance, perfect harmony, and what we perceive as not being perfect is simply the ebb and flow and the duality and, and polarity that is a constant cosmic law in the universe and that we are simply playing out that microcosm of the macrocosm of the entire thing and that that is what our story truly is and that instead of thinking about visitations from a ship that's going to land and we're finally going to learn the truth of everything, I think it's going to come in a very different form than that, Devo. I think it'll come with an understanding of the invisible aspects of our reality and the higher realms of our reality that exists all around us where that unveiling will come from. Hmm. Because truly, it's not about needing to go somewhere else. It's about yep. being in the right place in the right state. And we are finally learning how to break free of that illusionary, like that horse that's, you know, the horse that's running, that runs on a track in, yeah. in uh, racing yeah. where it has those blinders on. We're finally taking those blinders off right now. And it's a beautiful thing. That's why I want people to feel safe and maybe not scared about where we're going. Because even though it's a scary story at times, you know, all stories always have a happy ending. Yeah, I've never bought into the alien invasion. I still don't think it's possible. If assuming that you are right to some extent, I, I believe they're already here. They have never left. Yeah, like they were, exactly. they were here before exactly. us. And anything you see, and I tell this to everybody, like it's just going to be a holographic invasion to sort of like create this black swan event. So my question yeah. around that then is, where are they right now? Are they just sort of sitting on the side watching, observing? Oh, we're just being observed. Our entire reality is like a is like a reality show, like a game show. I think. Okay, and I think that we are of great interest to the universe in how this unfolds because it's described how that we're an experiment. That's something that what happened here is something that maybe hasn't happened and that is an experiment and everyone's sort of the edge of their seat watching how this experience unfolds. But there are puppeteers, we'll call them, okay? There are puppeteers that are, that are puppeteers based on cycles, intricately woven into our reality in a way where we don't understand, where they are like the cycle masters, okay? Try to wrap your head around that, uh, that term. Poimander, that's the story of Poimander, Poimander and Hermes. Mm -hmm. Go read into that, and, and, and I encourage anyone who hasn't read Hermetic texts, like the Poimander story with Hermes and the dragon, go read that, because basically what it tells us is that we're just playing in this, in this game, this cosmic game of duality, and that these cycle masters determine each age, and we are, we are literally like actors in that. And that each person can, fun, can, can end up playing a fundamental role in that story to either become like the hero or the villain or like, as, as I say, like an extra sort of like in the background. And it, it doesn't, you can decide whatever role you want to play. But what's really fascinating to me is that when destiny gets involved, it's like, well, at what point does someone need to do something? And I think that that's something that I want, I want everyone listening to this to wrap their heads around is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you have a degree. It matters what your heart and your intention is because you can do anything you want in the world. You can change the world. It's a good message to, to end on. Matt, I could have conversations with you for hours. I have, I didn't even get, three. I didn't okay, even we'll get do, through a fraction. One. Yeah. I didn't even get through a fraction of yeah, my I'm questions. I'm happy to come back on, but okay, we'll do a, we'll do a part three. All right. Tell us what you're working on now with this movie. When, when can we expect this movie that you're putting out? So we are heading to do full surveying scouting pre-survey trips coming up in spring. And so get ready for a lot of stuff on that as well. And then the filming will be part of a second, third trip 
So there'll be a numerous trips to all these locations to get ready to basically hike in, dive, travel, and I'll say travel in various ways to get to these places to have it more of it's a, it's a film that it's going to be an experience, an amazing experience with experts that are on a journey on an expedition to change all of history from every walk of life of every expertise to come and show their analysis of every location and then to go to other places of the world and try to connect that lost narrative say what if is this truly connected and to try to piece that together and then to bring it together in a way where we can create a story a story about what we've forgotten about who we are that in, that it encompasses everything and gets into the heart of who we truly are and the core of these symbols that go far back before Christianity. We didn't even get to talk about any of that side, I know. And I'm so, that'll be part three. That'll be a perfect one for part three. Right. But basically, imagine we have the very first cross ever in history at Ionis. The first cross ever. Not the crucifix, though. A cross exactly equal that represents the totality of harmony and balance both within and the entire universe and the earth. They understood that those are the necessary components for if you want to reach ascension, there are certain doorways that you must walk through first. And so this film will be about bringing that lost knowledge to humanity. And we are already looking at a major, major production that if people are interested, you can actually be a part of it. You can still contribute towards it. And if you, if you contribute a certain amount, you can actually be in the credits of the film. And so go to the stageoftime.com and you can check out if you want to be involved in that. But it's an amazing journey and experience. And I want to just say that, again, it has gotten the attention of some very powerful people in the world who have come to me. And they're interested in being a part of this. And I, well, I can't mention names. But it's very, very exciting. And my work in this and the legacy of this will be preserved. And I will spend the rest of my life, Devo, studying Lake Vaughan and the connection with this civiliz these civilizations literally probably until the day I take my last breath. Mm. It's my life's mission. Well, congratulations to you for your new enterprise, the Ionis Legacy. That's fantastic. If, if you want to find out some more information, I'm directing people to the stageoftime.com still. Is that the best yeah. place to still? Yep. Okay, great. Yeah, it's all been um, updated. I, I spent a lot of time with that web uh, updating that. So it's got a, a whole new look to it if you haven't been there recently. I, yeah, I, I have many times. Again, I follow you pretty religiously. And I, and I have joked with you, man, but I'm serious. If there's ever an opportunity that you need help with something or there's a way I can be involved in the photography, the video to just, like tell this story, yeah. uh, dude, I'm all in. So I'll let um, you know. If yeah, you ever absolutely. Need, I know you've got a crew and all the things, but Devo, I need I need you in Turkey, bud. You're like, all right, I'll be right there, right? Dude, I'm not joking. <laughs> like, I'm packed and ready to go, passports in hand. I travel a lot. So Okay. Um, okay I'm fascinated by the work that you're doing. I think Thank it's you. just brilliant. That. And um, I would love to take you up on the offer for, for round three. Because we didn't it. even we didn't even get to get into the religious stuff that I really wanted I know, to dive into. I know. So we'll we'll absolutely do it. Okay. We can talk when I get back. How about that? Okay, brilliant. Man, thank you so much for your time. I you gave me two hours. I know you're a busy dude, so I really appreciate it. And um, all the best to you in this adventure. And I'm gonna be watching thank very you. closely with it. It's appreciated, my friend. It was a great conversation. Until next time. As always. Thanks, Matt. See you, brother.